Elizabeth Messer, and we're so glad that you're listening to Lesson 6, where we will discuss Jesus as a better covenant and a better sacrifice. The concept of daily sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins is not something that we are very familiar with, but the sacrificial system was very important in the lives of the Jewish believers that the author is writing to. In this lesson, we discuss why Jesus offers a better sacrifice and a better covenant, the new covenant. Thanks for listening. Welcome. We're so glad you're joining us for Lesson 6 in our study of Hebrews. Today, we're going to be talking about Jesus as a better covenant, the new covenant, and a better sacrifice. We're so glad you're with us. Let me pray for us before we get started. Jesus, would you come and meet us now through your Holy Scripture? Send your Holy Spirit to Open our ears and our eyes as we hear from you. Help us to learn more about you and your ministry in the heavenlies as we read your word together today. In Jesus' name, amen. In our last lesson, lesson five, we talked about Jesus as the great high priest of a new covenant. We talked about Jesus' priesthood and compared that to the priesthood of in the Old Testament, the Levitical priest, and how his priesthood differed from uh, the priesthood that we saw in the Old Testament. And one of the key verses from last week was found in Hebrews 7, verse 12, for where there is a change of priesthood, there also must be a change of the law. And that's a key verse for us because the author is setting us up here and telling us that something new is coming. As he's telling us about Jesus's role as our great high priest, he's also preparing us that something new is coming and that something new is the new covenant that'll be different from the old covenant that was based on continual sacrifices in the temple. So I really see that verse as kind of a hinge verse, a key verse that's preparing us for what's to come in this next lesson. And before we go on and read uh, Hebrews chapter 8, I'm just going to go back and read the last part of Hebrews 7, starting at verse 21, to kind of set us up for this new lesson. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. And there, of course, he's talking about Jesus. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens, 
unlike the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priest men who are weak, but the oath which came after the law appointed the son who has been made perfect forever. And this is the word of the Lord. Uh, So here we see that it's going to set us up for uh, chapter 8, which is talking about uh, it's moving from it set us up as Jesus is our high priest And it's going to talk more about Jesus as the sacrifice and um, his role as the high priest in the heavenlies. So let's go ahead and read, um, go on and read in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. The point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one, meaning Jesus, also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there were already men who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to this pattern shown to you on the mountain. But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, and it is founded on better promises." The author in this passage is reminding his readers that the Old Testament priest served in a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in the heavenlies. He wants them to remember that, yes, the temple was a place of worship, but it's only a copy of what what we see here on earth is only a copy of what we have in the heavenlies. Um, and you have to remember that he's writing to these Jewish believers who were being persecuted for their faith um, because now that they had faith in Jesus, they didn't see the need to offer the daily sacrifices that were required by the Jewish law. You have to remember that the temple for these Jewish believers was uh, the pinnacle of their faith. It was, uh, you know, definitely a landmark. It was the place of many pilgrimages. I I just read somewhere that Jesus probably spent one third of his life um, actually traveling to the temple for festivals such as Passover and the um, Feast of the Tabernacles, traveling there, participating in those feasts in the temple, and then traveling home. It was so central to their part of their lives. And here the author is saying, uh, remember, we don't worship a place. We're not worshiping the temple. We worship a God in the heavenlies. And that's the most important thing about our faith. Before we read this next passage, I want to remind you 
about this word covenant because we're going to see it um, many times in this passage. Remember that a covenant here is more than a promise. The definition of a covenant, it was an agreement, usually formal and legally binding, between two or more persons to do or not do something specified. So remember, keep that in mind as we read this passage. It wasn't just... um, and it wasn't just a promise. It was more than that. It was it was something that, in their eyes, was was legally binding. It was a legal promise. So as I read through Hebrews eight verses six through twelve, I want you to listen for that word and underline every time you hear God use the words "I will." in this passage. And there's a long section in this passage where he's actually quoting, the writer's quoting straight from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, towards the end when he talks about the new covenant. So listen for those words, I will, when I read this next session. For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. What is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. So how many times did you hear God say in that passage, I will, I will be their God and they will be my people. And here, Um, I I went ahead and answered the next question for you. Who is completing or guaranteeing the action in this passage? It's God. God is saying, I will do these things. I will do these things. Trust my leadership. Follow me. Listen to me. I am making these promises with you. And when you hear that language um, in verse 10, Hebrews 8, verse 10, where he's quoting from the book of Jeremiah, This language where he says, I will be their God and they will be my people. It's language. It's betrothal language. It's more than just a legal agreement. It's it's betrothal. It's the kind of language that you would hear in a wedding ceremony. I will be your God. You will be my people. It's binding language. It's saying you belong to me. I am your God. You are my people. And um, I think of those uh, babies, if you've ever seen them, or sometimes you may have seen a mother 
with a newborn who has a newborn out in public do this, but they have these long pieces of fabric and they take the baby and they um, bind the baby to them with this fabric um, so that the baby kind of is a part of them sitting on their chest that they can they can carry, their hands are free and, and they don't have to hold the baby. But if that gives you a picture of what God's talking about here, he's saying, I bind you to myself and nothing can take you away from me. This is a new covenant, a new promise. I will be your God and you will be my people forever and ever. And um, the author here is just reminding us of that. But I want, I want you to hear that as betrothal language. I will be their God and they will be my people. He's promising us to himself. And uh, the last part, by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And was this obsolete and aging will soon disappear. That's verse 13. And uh, I, I think I told you at the beginning that this book was prophetic in many ways because the author is writing this to the Jewish believers before the temple uh, while the temple is still there in Jerusalem. And we know from history that the temple was destroyed by the Romans around A.D. 70. And so in just a few years, the temple will be obsolete. There will be no place to offer these daily sacrifices, the morning and evening sacrifices that the Levite priests would offer. So um, in those ways, he... He's speaking prophetically and that he didn't know it at the time, but this would happen. There would be this change. There would be a new covenant and, and the need, thus the need for the new covenant replacing the old covenant. But looking on the next page, what, which aspects of the new covenant bring you great joy and why? Would you say it's having God's law on your heart? Being one of God's chosen people, knowing God, having your sins forgiven. I want you to spend just a little bit of time, and you can even go back and reread those last few verses in chapter 8. But which of these aspects of the new covenant would you say brings you the greatest joy? When we talk about the new covenant, one of my favorite parts that we read about is God's promise that I will put my laws in their minds. I will write them on their hearts. And that's from Hebrews chapter 8 verse 10. And we think about when we think about the Old Testament, we have the the old covenant, we have this picture of Moses with these stone tablets and the law that was written by the finger of God onto these stone tablets. And now the author is reminding us through quoting the prophet Jeremiah that in the new covenant, instead of writing these laws on stone tablets, he will write them on our heart. And I think that's just such a beautiful picture that now it's not something outside of ourselves that we have to look to but God has actually given us that law in our hearts when we accept him and he comes to live inside of us. 
And uh, I was reminded of when Jesus is with his disciples and he's talking about leaving them, but that he won't leave them alone, that he will send us the Holy Spirit to help us. And this is what he says in John chapter 16 about the Holy Spirit. He says, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. So I love this picture too, that um, when I think about writing the law on our hearts, I think it's not just a one-time occurrence. It's something that happens as we grow in the Lord. It's a process that happens. And I'm reminded of our earlier discussion we talked about in the study where we looked at the passage in Ezekiel 36, and we talked about the difference between a heart of stone versus a heart of flesh. Remember when the prophet Ezekiel's talking, that's one of the promises that he gives his people. He says, I'll take your heart of stone and I'll give you a heart of flesh. And I remember we had a beautiful discussion about the differences between a heart of stone and a heart of flesh, that a heart of stone is is rigid it's unteachable, it's um, not living, it's, it's not alive. And just thinking about the difference in a heart of flesh, you kind of think about, um, I, I like to think about a lump of clay and something that's malleable and teachable, um, that's open to change. And I think that's such a beautiful picture of our heart as we grow in our faith and grow in our relationship with Jesus, that we're open, we're teachable, we want to learn more about his law, we're open to being corrected and to conviction and repentance and to change. And I really think that's a big difference between having a heart of stone and having a heart of flesh. But I love that promise that God will in, in this new covenant that God will write the laws on our hearts. Um, that's one of the beautiful promises of the new covenant. So let's move on now and talk more about the earthly tabernacle. And before we read this passages, um, I just want to say that there's so much here that we could talk about. We could do an entire study on the tabernacle and the plans that were given to Moses and the Israelites in the desert and um, the purpose of the tabernacle. But let's read what the author of Hebrews says, starting in chapter 9, verse 1. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the Most Holy Place, which had the golden altar of incense, the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the Covenant. Above the Ark was the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the atonement cover, but we cannot discuss these things in detail now. So here, even the author is saying there's so much here that we could talk about, but we don't have time to go into all of these things. 
Going on in verse 6, when everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry out their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and then only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins and the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They were only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order, Um, which I think is interesting just reading over this just now. Even the author here is talking about these, these were about external things. They were, they weren't things that could actually change your heart, which is about what matters for all eternity, right? So after reading that passage, how do you picture the earthly sanctuary described in verses one through five? What goes on in the outer room? So here in the passage, uh, they're talking about some of the different things that were set up in the tabernacle. Um, we have the lampstand, the the lamps that never went out, the table, and the consecrated bread. You might remember from the story of David when he's running into running away from Saul, and they go in and they eat the bread of the presence in the tabernacle. So there was always this consecrated bread, which was definitely a picture of um, a foreshadowing of what was to come when Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Uh, This was called the holy place. So there were these certain things that were set up in the, in the, that first room, there was a place for washing the lampstand, the altar of incense, um, that go on in the outer room. And the the priest would go in and out of this, um, this sanctuary and perform their daily sacrifices. They were allowed to be in that inner room, that outer room. But what goes on in the inner room and who is allowed to enter and when? And the author then goes on to talk about that only the high priest, in verse 7 he's saying, but only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, so sacrifice, which he offered for himself and the sins of the people. So this place, this inner sanctuary, which they sometimes called the holy of holies, this place where only the high priest could go, and then only once a year, um, and maybe you remember back to the story of Zechariah when he it was his turn to go in and offer the sacrifice. And do you remember how he goes in and he has this vision, he has this encounter with God where he tells them that he and Elizabeth are going to have a baby. And um, that, of course, is John the Baptist. And uh, I love that encounter with John because even though he goes into the Holy of Holies where God is said to dwell with his people, he's still surprised um, to actually have an encounter with God. Uh, But he does, and we know from that story in the book of Luke 
that um, it's even hard for him to believe. And because of that, he can't speak until John is born. Um, you'll also remember when it talks about the whole, this holy of holies, that it was a place that was set apart. Um, only the high priest was allowed to go in. And, and even then, it was um, not without sacrifice that they had to go through many, many ritual cleansings and washings to be able to be clean, uh, to go. Um, they had to offer sacrifices for themselves to be able to enter into that Holy of Holies. And do you remember when Jesus was sacrificed? This is recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. But one of the things that they recorded when Jesus was crucified and when he actually died on the cross, that the temple curtain that separated that inner and that outer sanctuary was actually torn in two. And this is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27. It says, And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. And there's so much more there that we could say, but just this picture that Jesus, as our high priest, was making this sacrifice, making a way for us, for all believers now, um, through our great high priest, Jesus, and because of his sacrifice, that now we are able to enter that holy place, that holy of holies and communion with God and have relationship with him. And we don't have to go through um, a priest that we're able to go through our mediator, our great high priest, who's made a sacrifice for us um, once and for all so that we can enter in, that any believer can come and have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Now we're moving on to part three of the lesson where we talk about the blood of Jesus Christ and why that matters. Why is that so important? We're going to read together from Hebrews chapter nine, starting at verse 11. When Christ came as a high priest to the good things that are to come, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonial unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ through whom the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciousnesses from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. So here, Jesus' priesthood is exercised here in what setting and by what right? So here at the very beginning, the author's reminding us that when Jesus sat, was sacrificed, when he was crucified and gave his life, that it, it happened on a heavenly realm. He's saying um, in verse 11 there where he says, a more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. So he's reminding the readers 
um, that this was not a sacrifice that was given in the physical temple, which was man-made, but the heavenly tabernacle. Um, Remember where he talks about that the one that we have here is just a copy and a shadow of the heavenly one. So he's reminding them this happened in the heavenlies, not in a man-made tabernacle, but in the heavenlies, the true tabernacle. And then his priesthood is exercised um, by what right? And it's talking about that before the Old Testament priest, the Levitical priest, had to use the blood of goats and calves. They were animal sacrifices that were given for the forgiveness of sins. But it's saying that Jesus entered by his own blood having obtained eternal redemption. And he goes on to talk about how much more if the blood of heifers and goats and calves cleansed us from the sins of the old old covenant, how much more important is the blood of um, the Son of God who gave himself to be a sacrifice for our sins. And he's just reminding them of this perfect ceremonial clean, unblemished um, blood that would cleanse us not just of our outward sins, but also cleanse us from um, for all. It says it cleanse our consciousnesses from acts that lead to death um, so that we may serve the living God. So we just answered that. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciousnesses from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. And I love how he ends it there with an exclamation point. Let's keep reading in Hebrews uh, chapter 9, verse 15. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it because a will is, is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant, which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood, both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. I'm going to stop reading right there for just a minute. Um, How is Christ's mediation like a ransom? Who are the hostages? Hostage to what? And who pays the ransom? So let's go back and look at verse 15. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. So remember that a ransom is something, um, if you think back to pirate movies or kidnappings, it's a price that someone has to pay 
to buy someone back who's been um, kidnapped, maybe sold into slavery, um, something like that. But it's a price that has to be paid to get the life back. And here the author is saying that Christ's mediation or his sacrifice, his blood was a ransom. Who are the hostages? We are the hostages. His brothers and sisters and God, the the children of God, um, are the hostages. And what are they? What are they hostage to? They're hostage to sin. We're hostages to sin that we can never be free from without the shedding of blood. And who pays this ransom? Jesus himself, God himself sends his only son, Jesus, to come and pay to rescue us back from this slavery. And he pays with his own life, his own blood. That blood is representative of the life. There's life in the blood. And he gives his life um, as a sacrifice to pay the ransom, to buy us back um, from, from the slavery of sin. I've been, we've just had Easter and Passover, and I've been thinking a lot about Passover and um, just how it was, it was a foreshadowing um, when the Israelites were in slavery in Egypt. This was meant to be a foreshadowing for us when God um, sends Moses and the different plagues to buy them out of slavery. That was supposed to be a picture for us of um, a foreshadowing of what was to come with the new covenant when Jesus would come and rescue us from the slavery, um, not from man, but slavery of sin that we could never rescue ourselves from. We needed to have someone to come and rescue us to pay the price, to pay the ransom so that we could be free. Why this emphasis on shed blood? It goes on and on about blood. And what was it used for? I think for us, we're not comfortable with all this talk about blood. It seems first in our culture, we're not we're not comfortable about it. And I was thinking about even it seems kind of like something we would hear about in old time religion where they talk about we're cleansed by the blood, or I'm covered by the blood, or you hear about these songs, um, you know, there is a fountain filled with blood. And just how foreign that is to our modern mind. Um, I was thinking about when we go to the grocery store now, and you buy meat that's been um, packaged, you know, you don't see a drop of blood. When I buy my package of boneless, skinless chicken breast, you know, there's not one drop of blood to be seen in that package. We're so uncomfortable with the thought that something had to die in order that I can live, in order that I can um, cook this meat and have, have dinner tonight. So something had to die in order that I may live. But we're so removed from that in our modern culture that it it makes us very uncomfortable to think about all this talk about the blood. Um, But what was it used for? It was used for 
cleansing. And it goes on in the passage. It says, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That is such a key verse for this passage. Um, It's such a foreign idea to us. I think even the idea of sacrifices were so removed from that. But you have to remember, this was their rhythm, their daily rhythm, the morning sacrifices, the evening sacrifices, the special yearly sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. Um, And so to think that Christ's sacrifice satisfied that, his blood sacrificed that, um, once and for all, it was it was really radical. It was it was a new thought. It was a difficult thought for them to comprehend that those sacrifices in the Old Testament, according to the Old Testament Levitical system, were no longer necessary. We're moving on to the last part of the lesson, part four, Christ's sacrifice once for all. So let's read together from Hebrews chapter ten. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of their sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. First, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law requires them to be made. Then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So in what ways does Christ replace the inadequate sacrifices of the law? How do we enter into this holiness through Jesus' obedience? Um, I was struck as we were just reading this passage in verse 5 where he talks about a body you have prepared for me. And Jesus came and he was willing to um, live a perfect life, to be a perfect, unblemished, spotless, sinless sacrifice for you and for me, for all of us who believe in him. Um, He offered his body. It was the the perfect lamb um, that we could never acquire on our own through endless sacrifices made day after day and year after year. So he replaces that sacrifice by being the perfect sacrifice for us. Let's keep reading. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices 
which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy." The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, This is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts. I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. So how is this once and for allness of Christ's death illustrated? Why did his sacrifice make future sacrifice unnecessary? And we'll go back. This is our key verse for this lesson. But it says in verse 12, it says, But when this priest, and there they're talking about Jesus Christ as our great high priest. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins. And um, in the Book of Common Prayer, it says uh, one oblation once offered. Um, it's, It's kind of they're emphasizing there offered for all time. So he's talking about from now until eternity, for all time, this was the only sacrifice that needed to be made and one sacrifice for sins. So he's saying, um, we don't have to go back to the day after day system of sacrifices. This was one sacrifice once offered for all time that we don't need to make more. Um And then it says, but when the priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And um, we have this picture there of Jesus as our great high priest offering the sacrifice his body, which he says in um, going back to verse five, a body you prepared for me, um, offering his body, his blood as the sacrifice um, that now he's seated. And this picture of being seated is um, it's symbolic of being finished in the Jewish culture. His work was finished and that's why he's seated. But also it's not a passive um a, a passive sense of being seated. That word in the Hebrew actually means when you're seated, um, it symbolizes being finished, but it also symbolizes ruling and reigning. And it talks about that, that um, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Um, so he's there, he's ruling and reigning with God, the majesty and he's seated at his right hand. The work is finished. He's ruling and he's reigning from that position. I want to go back to this sentence. Um, it's There's kind of an interesting, if you listen to the words there, it says, because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect. 
So this thought of we're made perfect in him. We are, that work is finished. That's called justification. We're, we are justified in Christ. It's finished. It's over. We are made perfect. It's, um, it's in the past. It's done. But then it's interesting. It says those who are being made holy. So there's this sense that um, yes, we were in Christ, we are forgiven, it's over, it's finished. But then it goes on to say there's this process of being made holy, and that's the process of sanctification. So um, there's this sense of the already, but the not yet. Yes, in Christ, we are seen as perfect, but just like that image of the heart of stone that becomes the heart of flesh. There's parts of us that are still will never be completely perfect until we are with Jesus on the other side of eternity. So this lifetime is all about um, our being made perfect through the process of sanctification and um, the conviction of our sins, um, the continual acts of repentance we have um, for um, when we do sin. Um, So and and that's a bit of a mystery too, but I think that's a sentence for us to kind of think about and meditate on. We have been made perfect, but we are in the process of being made holy. And just this idea that on this side of eternity, we'll never achieve that holiness that Jesus had, that that perfect, unblemished, spotless life. And that's why we're always um, in in need of him and in need of relationship with him, why we always come back and are hidden with him. Um, I, I think that if we saw our sin all in one moment, it would literally crush us. It would destroy us. And so over time, um, these things that are revealed to us, we're in the process of being made holy Um yet as we are hidden in him and made perfect by his righteousness we are covered by his blood and his sacrifice so it's kind of one of those those mysteries and and i do want to say that i i think that this lesson is one of the most difficult lessons in the study of hebrews um and also as i've just been reading over this i'm just reminded i think the author is going into um intense detail here about sacrifices. And that's, it's really foreign to us. We're not used to hearing about or learning about the sacrificial system. But the main point of this lesson is just knowing that Jesus Christ in every way um, met the requirements to be that perfect sacrifice, that for all time, once for all, perfect sacrifice that the author writes about. And even though it seems difficult to comprehend for us because we're so unfamiliar with the sacrificial system, um, just know that I just have faith and confidence that Jesus meets the requirements of that perfect sacrifice in, in ways that we don't even comprehend or understand because we don't fully understand um, the sacrificial system. So I just wanted to add that too. We've already talked about this. We're still in the process of being made holy. And I just want to finish by uh, reading this section from 
Hebrews 10, starting at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who is promised is faithful. What a great way to end this chapter. Thanks for joining us. I'm going to close us with a word of prayer. Jesus, thank you that you serve as my great high priest, that you are my mediator in the holy place and have ransomed yourself as a sacrifice for my sins, to save me from the death of my own sin and to continue to intercede for me in the heavenly places at the right hand of God the Father. Amen. you are encouraged by that message. Please join us for the following lessons and be sure to subscribe, like, and comment on this podcast Elizabeth Messer shares on your favorite podcasting platform. Thank you.